We're in the book of Acts this morning, book of Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand and I will make sure that you are provided with one. Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be uh, reading verse 1 all the way down to verse 7. Book of Acts written by a man named Luke who was a physician and historian and more importantly a lover of God and he was filled and influenced and inspired by the Holy Spirit as he penned these words. Acts chapter 6. Word of God says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father God, what we have just read was written by Luke, but ultimately it is from you. And God, I thank you so much that you have not left the church to flounder around and figure out how to do church and how to be the church. But God, I thank you that you've given us instructions. You've given us wisdom. You've given us your word. And God, I pray that as we hear your word preached today, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive what you have to say to Harbin's this morning, and that you would guide Pastor Steve as he leads us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer. We are in our series, He Reigns, going through the book of Acts in chapter 6 now. And we'll continue to go through this series and periodically take a break here or there uh, to do a specific um, series on a topic or whatever God might lead us to, to deal with at that time in the life of our church. So we're just picking it back up after doing a couple of uh, messages for Christmas and New Year's, and we pick it up in chapter 6, which is sort of a new phase of the book of Acts. Up until this point, um, the, the author, Luke, as Deemer said, has just been focusing on what's happening in Jerusalem, and starting right here in Acts chapter 6 with um, the, uh, the calling of these seven men to be servants in the church, we begin to see a shift, and the gospel begins to spread outside of Jerusalem. Not all of it is by design of the church. God has to force the hand to a certain degree, and we'll get to that later. But we get to this point in the book of Acts here where um, we again see some challenges to this fledgling church, to this new church. Uh, first, there were some external ch challenges. Uh, we've seen increasing persecution. It started with intimidation and threats and turned into physical um, torture. Basically, we, that's the only thing you can call uh, the flogging that the disciples endured 
And so they face these external challenges, but there's also been some internal challenges. We read of, of Ananias and Sapphira who, um, well, basically tried to deceive the church and deceive the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and God dealt with that, as we saw, quite harshly. And we see some more challenges beginning to emerge here. And I think it's an important thing for us to learn as we read through the book of Acts, because periodically throughout church history there are these movements, and there's one even today going on, these movements to get back to what we would think is the pure church. In other words, go back to the book of Acts and, and just be like the book of Acts church. And, and certainly we should look at the book of Acts and let it be our, our guide, because the New Testament, the Bible, is our guide for, for life and practice. But what we see in the book of Acts is a church that had problems, just like every church has problems. There's a tendency to idealize the, the early church in Acts and, and, and to put them on this pedestal and think they had no problems, and, and therefore we just need to get back to doing what the church of Acts was doing. Well, guess what? They had problems too. They had Ananias and Sapphira, as I just mentioned, who were deceiving others inside the church, and greed, money, was their, uh, was their focus. We've see, we'll see in this passage and in other passages discrimination within the church of Acts. Um, we'll read in chapter 8 of a guy named Simon the Magician who tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Okay? No one's tried that yet in this church. Um, we'll see disagreements. We'll see a missionary by the name of John Mark get scared and cower and give up on the mission that God had placed him on. We'll see um, a split between the two most well-known missionaries in the church at that time, a split that leads them in opposite directions. We see issues in the first church in Acts, just like we have issues in the church today. So don't, as we read through the book of Acts, just think, well, they had it all together. They, just like we, are sinners saved by grace, redeemed sinners. And until we are with Christ in glory, we are in a process of being made into the likeness of Christ called sanctification. And until we get to that point, we're going to be battling our flesh all life long, and we're going to have mistakes. And there's going to be issues in the church, and we'll always have to deal with them. But we can follow the lead of Acts by looking at ways to deal with issues as they arise in the church. I'm glad that Luke is honest. I'm glad he shares us, with us the beautiful passages, the beautiful things that were going on in the church, like Acts 2.44, it says, and the believers were together and had all things in common. See, this is what I mean. Some people read just those passages and think, ah, that's just, let's just do that and everything else will be fine. And forget that there's passages like this one. And Luke is very honest. There's issues that arise in the church. So today I've entitled the message, um, Averting Dangers and organizing for growth. Averting dangers and organizing for growth. I want us to look at this passage a little bit closer this morning, and I want us to see some dangers that the church was facing. Look at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In this passage, just those two verses, I see three dangers that the church was facing then and that the church faces today. Three dangers. And so I want us to look at these three dangers to the church. And the first danger is the potential for division and disgruntlement in the church. The potential for division and disgruntlement in the church. Every church faces this danger from the very first church in Acts to our church today, to all churches that will be started from this point forward. 
we see here that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Well, what's a Hellenist? Okay, a Hellenist basically is a Greek-speaking Jew, whether by birth or maybe they were a proselyte, a, a Greek-speaking or a Roman citizen who, who became a Jew, who converted to Judaism, whether by birth or by, by being a proselyte. They, they grew up in a Greek, the Greek-speaking part of the Roman world and therefore absorbed the Greek language and absorbed Greek culture and customs as well. And these were the Hellenist Jews. Um, they remained devout to Judaism. These Hellenist Jews had remained devout to Judaism, and they were now living in Jerusalem. And we have evidence, archaeological evidence, that there were Greek-speaking synagogues. There were, there were Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking synagogues, and then there were Greek-speaking synagogues for those Jews who had grown up in other parts of the Roman world and could only speak Greek. So that's what it means by the Hellenist. It's these Greek-speaking believers. These were Jews that now have converted to Christianity. They've put their faith in Christ, the Messiah, and they speak Greek only. And then it says against the Hebrews. Well, the Hebrews were the Aramaic-speaking Jews, uh, mostly native to Palestine, although they probably could speak Greek too because it was a universal language. But they were the Aramaic-speaking Jews, mostly native to Palestine, who used the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hellenists would have used the Septuagint. Remember a few weeks back I explained that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament? That's what the Hellenists would have used. And uh, the Hebrews would use the Hebrew uh, version of the Scriptures. So you can see why there's potential division here. You can see why there's potential challenges here. I mean, if we were to uh, start a Hispanic church, and instead of starting it at a different hour, or having Hispanic service after this service or whatever, and we're still talking about having a partnership with La Fe and Cristo, about um, them meeting in our building. But, you know, if we decided, you know, just, just do away with that, let's just have the service all together. We can try that. But it makes it much more difficult. It's very difficult to create cross-cultural ministry. It just is. My dream has always been to have a church that has multiracial, um, multilinguistic, and just, but it's very difficult when you have people that don't speak the same language. Sometimes, just practically speaking, that's very difficult to pull off. I remember going to a church in Abilene, Texas, to a Hispanic church there, and the pastor would, the service was, you know, ours, hour 15, give or take 30 minutes, all right? Uh, and, and, but this service there in Abilene, Texas was three hours long because the pastor had to preach the sermon in Spanish and English. And he said it was because there were, there were those who had moved to, from Mexico and, and they'd come there and they spoke Spanish and some English. And they had children in the United States who only spoke English. And they had brought their, grand, their parents from Mexico to come live with them who only spoke Spanish. So the pastor had to speak in both languages and the sermon was very, very long. And I, speaking Spanish, since I know how to speak Spanish, I heard it twice. So I was like those parents that were there that heard the sermon twice. But this, there's challenges. You can see the reasons that there are division, potential division here. This is always a danger in the church. Okay, just because we're human and we like to hang out with people who are like us, cliques, groups tend to form in the church. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I want you to be friends with people you like, but we have to guard against the church becoming a bunch of little segregated groups that forget about the other people in the church because that can easily happen because we're human and we like, like I said, to be with people who are just like us. Okay, Our, our uh, mother church has been very, uh, very well known that they're going through some challenges right now with basically there are homeschool parents and there are public school parents and there's private school parents and there's like these three groups 
And they've been very, very active about trying to deal with that and overcome some challenges they're facing. And I look at our, our, our mother church, our, our sponsor church, Anchor, and say, you know what? We need to guard against that. We need to guard against that early on. And not wait until we're running 300 or 200 or whatever to try to deal with the issues of division and disgruntlement that can come up in the church. So, uh, I don't think in this passage there is overt neglect or an attempt to just uh, uh, outright intentionally discriminate against these Hellenist widows. I think it's unintentional. Matter of fact, I think the passage proves it's unintentional by the way they deal with the problem. But I want to move on real quickly to the second danger. So the first danger is the potential for division and disgruntlement in the church. The second danger is the potential for ignoring real needs in the church. The potential for ignoring real needs in the church. The reason that they were upset that there was uh, beginning to be division in the church is because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. What is this daily distribution? Well, it's, it's Acts 2.45 in action, okay? It says that they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's repeated in Acts 4.34. It says there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So that's how it was working in the church. People, as needs arose, sold their property. We've already preached this. And then they would bring it to the church under the authority of the church. And it was distributed as people had needs. But apparently, the church had gotten big enough. And there were some people that were being neglected. There were needs that were being neglected in the church. These Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. And their needs may have actually been worse than the Hebrew-speaking widows. Because what happened a lot of time is these, these people who lived, these Jews who lived in other parts of the Roman world would come back to Jerusalem in their twilight years because they wanted to die in Jerusalem and be buried in Jerusalem. Okay, a lot of that was messianic reasons. They wanted to come back and to die in Jerusalem. So these couples, these elderly couples would come back far away from friends, far away from family, far away from their support system and come back to Jerusalem and if the husband would die. The widow was left without a whole lot of support. And you remember, because these widows had identified themselves with the church now they were cut off from the Jewish welfare system. And so these Hellenist Jewish uh, widows had a lot of needs in the church. And the church must always be on guard against neglecting to meet the needs of the people in the church, especially the needs of the helpless. And in particular, the Bible tells us, singles out widows and orphans as people to whom the church should pay particularly close attention to meeting the needs of. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what the church is facing here, the danger is that they're moving away from pure and undefiled religion. So when we read this passage, I think those first two dangers stand out pretty clear. Okay, I don't, you, didn't guys need, you didn't need me to stand up here for the first ten minutes of this sermon and point out those two dangers for you. You see those. You see the danger of division, and we see the danger of the needs being neglected. But there's a third danger. Matter of fact, it's a much bigger danger that the church faces in this passage. And it's the danger, really, that Luke's focusing on here. And danger number three is the potential for neglecting the ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer in the church. The potential for neglecting the ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer in the church. 
verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is the biggest danger the church faces, both then and today. Bigger than the danger of division in the church, bigger than the danger of not meeting real needs in the church, is the danger of a church that strays away from the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. If a church does a fantastic job of making sure there's unity and no division in the church, if the church does a fantastic job of making sure the needs, especially of those who are helpless, are met in the church, but fails in its, in its ambition to meet those needs and its ambition to keep that unity, fails to allow its leaders to preach the word of God and to pray, then that church is in grave, grave danger. And I believe that with all my heart, and I believe that's what Luke wants us to see here. That's what Luke wants us to see from this passage. The way um, uh, John Stott put it was that, that, the, there's an, that Satan has an increasingly, uh, he, he tries a different tactic against the church each time. First he tries persecution, then he tries corruption. Okay, persecution just makes the church stronger. Uh, the corruption's dealt with pretty immediately by God. And now he comes in with distraction. Distraction. Uh, it'd be kind of like this. Let's say, um, let's say I got a very important phone call one day. I'm at home, and I'm working, and I got a, a very, very important phone call. Hey, what do you know? I got a phone call. Wouldn't you know it? It's the President of the United States. All right. So let's say I'm at home one day, and I get a call from the, the President of the United States. And hello? Yeah. Hello, Mr. President. It's good to talk to you, too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, t Mr. President, tell you what. You know, yeah, I know, I know this is important, but... My kids are trying to, they're bickering, and they're trying to decide what television show they want to watch. And really, can they, oh, I know it's a matter of national security, oh, international security. Okay, all right, Mr. All right, Mr. President, Mr. President, please, please. You know what, I've also, got, I've also got to balance my checkbook this afternoon. And really, and the garage is just so, so messed up. I've got to cl clean out the clutter. But I know you have a very important message. A life-saving message you want me to share with my family and you want me to share with, with my neighbors. Everybody. But you know what? Really, Mr. President, I got I to gotta go. Hey, hey, good luck with all that health care and stuff. All right, talk to you later. All right. All right. Be ridiculous. If the president called me, okay, I'd drop everything. And if he had a message for me, he wants to speak to me and he wants me to speak to him. Maybe he wants uh, some counsel. I don't know. And... and and, and he has a message that he wants me to get out. He has a, a, a task he wants me to do. I wouldn't let anything stop me. I wouldn't be distracted like that. And so this message, this message here, this gospel message, is infinitely greater than any message the president could ever ask for me to carry. And, and this task that God has for, for the church to, to pray and to, to speak the word is, is infinitely more important than anything of national security or international security. And yet, many a church, many, many, many a church falls into the danger of allowing itself to become so preoccupied with programs and systems and, and, and manners of doing ministry that we forget that the primary calling of the church is word and prayer. 
And the leaders of the church are to be doing that and to be leading the church in that. There's denomination after denomination that has given up the preaching of the Word, but they still do social ministry very, very well. And they're also pretty unified. But they're not preaching the Word, and they're not praying. And so we have to make sure that we're a church that does what we're supposed to do, a church that doesn't fall into this third danger. It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God. Okay, this is the response of the apostles. Now, this leads us to believe, I mean, their response seems kind of strange. Okay, they, they bring the issue before them. And they say, hey, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word and prayer. So that means that apparently that was either suggested or insinuated. And I think this is how it happens because I've had it happen before. Pastor, what are you going to do about this? Pastor, there's a problem. How are you going to fix the problem, Pastor? What are you going to do? And so the apostles are approached and said, these people are being left out. And it was ultimately the apostles' responsibility. Whose feet was the, was the money brought to? It was brought to the feet of the apostles. And so the church, okay, they didn't know any better. Just say, what, how are y'all going to fix this, Peter? When are you going to start handing out food to the Hellenist widows? And Peter and them said, wait a second here. That is not the way to solve danger number one. In danger number two. Matter of fact, to solve danger number one and danger number two in that way creates danger number three, which is far worse. And so they had to come up with a solution. When it says here they were preaching the word, literally it means uh, they didn't want to give up the word. It says that in the Greek. We can't give up the word. Now the ESV translators have added preaching in there, but really it, it means more than that. Preaching the word and studying the Word, and meditating upon the Word, and memorizing the Word, this is the job of the leaders of the church to be doing. And so here, uh, there has to be some sort of solution that will enable this young church to deal with these growing pains and to avert all three dangers. So, look at verse 2. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, Full of, the Holy, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the Word. Remember what I said, when you hear things twice in a passage, especially a passage as short as this one, that's the focus. <laughs> twice now, the apostles have said, we will focus on the Word and on prayer. But you, you, church, you choose seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom to handle this problem. So here's how it went. Here's how the flow went. The apostles led. Okay, the whole church was therefore involved though. The apostles say, okay, we can't give up the task that God's called us to. Church, all of it, they bring, they bring the whole church together to talk about this. Church, let's deal with this. Okay, the apostles choose the number of men needed. And then the men were chosen by the church from among you is what the scripture says. The church chose the men to deal with with this problem. What type of men? Of good repute. Okay, that means above reproach, which is exactly what 1 Timothy 3 tells us about these type of men. They are to be above reproach. They are to be full of the Spirit, spiritually discerning and mature men, spiritually mature, and wisdom, skilled in an organization, skilled in administration. And what they said, according to verse 5, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip and Procurus 
and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a, a proselyte of Antioch. This pleased the whole church. What was it that pleased the church? Not only was the issue, that what pleased the church is that seven men were going to be chosen to deal with danger number one and danger number two, but it also pleased the church that their leaders were going to be freed up to do what they were called to do. And then also, we see here that the church, it was the church's job to choose these seven men. It's very interesting here that all seven men have Hellenistic names. All seven of these men were Hellenistic Jews. One of them's a proselyte, meaning he wasn't even a Jew by birth. He converted. And so all seven of these men are Hellenistic Jews. What that tells me is that there was tremendous wisdom in this decision. There couldn't be any accusation after this that the church didn't care for the Hellenistic widows. It's a very wise decision by the church. The church chose the right men based upon the situation they were in at that time. I'm sure there were other men qualified. Remember a guy by the name of Barnabas? Okay, he's in the church. There's plenty of other men qualified. They pick the men, not based upon a popularity contest, but based upon who they need at that time to help with that situation that the church is going through. That's who they chose, and wisely they chose seven Hellenistic men. The apostles confirmed them by laying their hands on them and praying for them. It was a confirmation and a commissioning of these men to their mission. So here's the pattern. God-given authority and leaders of the church propose the solution to the church. The church follows the lead. The church elects the men to serve. And the apostles confirm and appoint the men to service. Now what does that have to do with the church today? A lot. Because we face the same dangers that that church faced. These same three dangers pop up, have popped up in this very church. These same dangers we face today. And so I believe that this passage is teaching an early form of deacons. Now it's true, the word deacon is never used in this passage. I think that's because this is the first time they've ever had to do something like this. And this is a real church. These are real people. And, and they didn't just all of a sudden go, bing, hey, let's call these guys deacons, all right? They said, we, we need some servants in the church. And this office, these, uh, this election of these servants developed into what we know as the office of deacons that we read of in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody agrees that these are early deacons. Some believe this is just a, an election of some servants for a specific problem, and then later that group was dispersed or disbanded. Some people look at Stephen, but the fact that he preaches later on, and the fact that Philip is an evangelist later on, as that maybe these guys were elders and not deacons, but that view is not held very very much. Historically, the church has viewed the election of these seven men as the first deacons in the church. And I would say that God's sovereignty is all over this. Okay, even though the church is going through problems, there's issues, you see them pick seven men, and God is sovereign. He's putting together the organization structure that the church needs in order to grow. He's weaving together exactly what they need in order to be the type of church that he wants them to me to be. So I see in this model, I see in this passage a model for establishing deacons. Now, how about, wait a second, we don't have apostles anymore. Okay, so if we're, if we're talking about deacons here, then, then what, about, what about elders? What about pastors? Well, as I've shared with you guys before, we do still have the apostles with us. We have them right here. This is what the apostles have given us. This is the teaching of the apostles. This is the foundation of the apostles that you read of in Ephesians. 
Yes, and there was an office of an apostle in the church, but as the canon closed, as Scripture was completed, we had the foundation of the teaching of the apostles, and the Bible makes it very clear, the establishment of leaders in the church called elders or pastors. And so, in this passage today, we could say that standing in the place of the apostles, not with apostolic authority, because the apostolic authority is right here, but standing in the place of the apostles as leaders and guides for the church are the elders. And in this church, that is Demer, and that is I. And so the elders, what I see in this passage is the elders need to confer and discuss and decide on the number of deacons that a church needs. The elders bring the recommendation to the church. The church, using wise and discerning processes, thinking through what our church is facing right now, elects the deacons. The deacons are confirmed and commissioned by the elders. And the deacons are servants of the church to meet the physical needs of the church and are under the authority and the leadership of the elders. I believe that is a thoroughly biblical structure for church. And so here we are, a young church, not nearly as big as they are. Some estimates are the church in, in Jerusalem by now is 15,000 people. Okay, so we're not nearly that big. Okay, and they needed seven to deal with 15,000. So I'm not sure how many we need right now. But I do know that God is leading us into a phase in life where it's about time that we begin to consider bringing deacons on board uh, with our leadership. These elders, like the apostles, elders like the apostles in this passage, are to give the bulk of their energy to two things. What are they? Preaching and prayer. I'll say that again. The elders in the church are to give the bulk of their time to two things, preaching and prayer. I've heard it so many times. People think preachers are the laziest people in the world because they say this. They may not say a preacher, you're lazy, but they'll come up and say, now what do you do? All the, what do you do with your time? Okay, because it doesn't seem productive to be on your knees for three hours. It doesn't seem productive by man's standards. It doesn't seem productive to, to read over a passage 20 times asking God to give you some sort of insight into the passage. That doesn't seem productive to the world, but that's God's way of doing things. And he has put elders in place, pastors in place. That's their primary job. I am not an administrator. I am not a financial bookkeeper. I am not... A, a, a building planner. I am not a building cleaner. I am not any of those things. I'm not a sound guy. I'm not a video guy. I am none of those things. I am a pastor. I am an elder. I am called by God to preach the word of God and to pray for you guys and for this church and for the extension of the gospel into this community and beyond. That's my calling. That's my role. And if I do a phenomenal job of administrating and a phenomenal job of, of getting a sound system going and a phenomenal job of producing videos and a phenomenal job of these type of things and I don't spend time preparing through this book right here, the Bible, and I don't spend time praying for you, I have failed you as a pastor. And you get rid of me. Get rid of me. Because what you need is someone on their knees for you and someone praying through this word and meditating on this scripture. What you need is someone sitting on a Saturday night struggling and crying over the Scriptures because you can't quite get what God wants to say yet. I am proud and pleased to do that for you. That's my primary calling and role. Primary calling and role as a pastor. And so as we begin to grow and we begin to get close to getting into a building and we got challenges 
facing us with that and just the challenges of the modern church trying to keep in touch with people. I mean, we live, I've been reading a book, um, I've been reading a book that Miss Mary gave me, and they're not here today, but Miss Mary gave me a book on the history of Ebenezer Baptist Church right down the road here. It's fascinating. It, it really helps me get insight into the history of this area. And I'm reading the history of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and everybody lived within walking distance. And, and, and life began to get more difficult for Ebenezer with the advent of the car. Because people started traveling farther for their work or living farther, and things got challenging. And so now we face the challenges of a modern church with half of our members live all over the place, and, and we communicate via email and these type of things and there's lots of challenges the church faces and the pastor has to be wise an elder has to be wise and to delegate those things to men in the church who are skilled to help out with those things while he spends the bulk of his time preaching and praying it's that simple and i believe that with all my heart paul said in first corinthians 9 16 woe to me if i do not preach the gospel if gospel stops coming from this I was going to say pulpit from this bar table. If gospel stops coming from right here, then woe to me. I am going to be judged severely by God because I have not done what I was called to do. And so, woe to me if I fail to preach the gospel. 1 Timothy 4, 13-16. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which, has, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. You're supposed to be watching me, my progress as a pastor. So all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And therefore, my job is to preach the gospel, preach the word, pray for you guys, and in doing so, equip you guys for the ministry of service. That's what the Bible says. You guys are then equipped to go and serve people. And you don't have to be in an elected role to serve people, but it's wise for the church to elect men to serve in that capacity to minister to the church and to organize the church. And so that's where we're at today. I think it's interesting, the word here when he says, when, when Peter says that we shouldn't be waiting on tables, that, that Greek word for table can also mean um, money-changing table. It wasn't just a place where they dealt with the food. It was also a place where they dealt with the finances. So should the elders run the finances of the church? Well, I believe obviously they should have oversight and authority over the finances of the church. But I have no problem with the deacons helping organize and run the finances of the church. And so, elders meet the spiritual needs of the church. That's preaching and teaching. Deacons meet the physical needs of the church. Administration, ministry, finances. Both are needed. Both are important. And both are seen in this passage. You know, I had a had a healthy conversation with my dad this week. My dad's a, a, he's a director of missions up in North Carolina, helps get churches planted all the time. You know, uh, I think he's a little bit, or he thinks he's farther on the cutting edge of church than maybe I am, right? So we have some discussions sometimes, and, and you know, I'm not, we don't always agree on everything. That's okay. You know, my dad don't always come down, we don't always come down on the same thing. And we're talking about organic church. There's this move now to home churches and organic church. 
And I said, Dad, you know, I'm fine with organic church as long as there's structure. Because God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. As long as there's structure. And I understand the organic movement being a pendulum swing against cold, institutionalized organizations that have no love for people. It's just organizations functioning you know, mechanically. We do this, we do this. I understand that, and there needs to be a correction, but I don't think we should go to the organic extreme or to the cold organizational stream. We should understand what the church is. It's an organism. An organism has structure. Your cells and your body have structure, holding it together, keeping it in place, but you also have fluidity. Your, your body changes and adapts to things and can experience new things and try new things. So we are an organism. That's what the church is. It's an organism with organizational structure and organic by nature that we go out into the world, we adjust as we need to adjust, but we keep a biblical structure in place, like a skeleton in a body. We keep a biblical structure in place so that we can be the church that God's called us to be. And elders and deacons are part of that vital structure. So here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. The solution for the church in Acts and the solution for the church today is to be unified and organized for the purpose of meeting needs and for the purpose of freeing up its leaders to do what they are called to do. And I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that's being organized for growth. Look at the result in chapter in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. The word increase is grow in the Greek. The word of God continued to grow. Do you know the word of God can grow without numbers growing? I want to see numeric growth. That's also an indication that the word of God is growing. But the word of God also grows when I see a man immature in his faith, after a year under the preaching and the teaching of the word, after a year of being prayed over, after a year of being connected with other men in Christ, when I see him growing in his faith and flourishing, that's the word of God growing. And it has nothing to do with numbers. And so the word of God, the purpose here is for the word of God to grow and to increase. And the number of disciples also multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, according to verse 7. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Great many priests. Now, these are probably not the high priests that were on the Sanhedrin, but there were, there were, there were estimates that there were up to 8,000, between eight and 10,000 priests in Jerusalem, most of them doing little menial tasks in the temple or on rotations. And many of these priests became obedient to the faith. So here's what I'm proposing for Harmon's Community Baptist Church. Next week, I will preach a sequel to this sermon. Uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I know you're saying, well, we already preached through 1 Timothy. I want to preach through it again and talk about the structure of church leadership. And then I'm going to propose a timeline next week for this church to begin to implement deacons in our church. And Deemer and I will continue to work through that and hammer that out. But we will propose a timeline for the nomination of deacons in our church and the implementation of a deacon body at Harbin's Community Baptist Church. I believe it's an important next step as we get ready to go into that building for this church body. I think it's like the skeletal structure of, of, of our bodies. We need to have it in place in order for our church to be healthy. And so, with that, let me just take us now to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Mark's going to close us in one song. And we're just going to bow our heads and close our eyes. And right now, I want you to be thinking about these three dangers that the church faces. The danger of division. Uh, the danger of, of needs not being met. And the worst danger of all, the danger that we could stray away from teaching the Word of God and praying. 
And I want you to ask God what he would have you do in your heart to help avert those dangers in our church. To help meet needs. Um, to help overcome some, perhaps some clickishness, some barriers in our church. And to help Deemer and I be what God's called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are awesome. You are amazing. You are wonderful. It's so easy sometimes to be tempted to look at a passage like this, God, and to think, man, that church has some problems and, and they have some mistakes. And, and not realize that your sovereign hand is still on top of the church. And God, you allowed them to pass through challenges of division challenges of discrimination in the church, challenges of deceit in the church, challenges of persecution against the church. You allowed them, you sovereignly pushed them through those trials, and in the process, you put in a structure for the church for all time. So God, we praise you for your sovereign hand on the church. We praise you for your sovereign hand on our church. God, I can how many times have I told you this, Lord? I would have done things a thousand different ways than what you've chosen to do them here at Harbin's. But praise be to you that I'm not God, because I would have messed it all up. And so, God, you get all the glory in what you're doing at Harbin's. You get all the glory for the time that it's taken us to get in that building. You get all the glory for the process of growth that you're taking each one of us through individually. God, you get all the glory as you bring new people to this church. So, God, we ask now that your name be magnified in song. And we pray, Father, that you allow us to leave this week and not just drop this message off as we walk out the doors, but to let it, let it stir up in our heart a, a whole week of just meditating for what it means to be the church. So God, we pray all this in the name for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.